0: You never know. You never know. It can go sideways. It can go exactly the way you hope. You can have everything organized, and actually everything you organized was a bad idea. And somehow the subject, the model, the actor, helps you to get there. The the trick, and I learned this late, because in the beginning I think photographers tend to be a a little bit arrogant, and the older you get, the less arrogant you become. It's not about us. It's about the subject in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. And when you manage to do that, then you are in a good place to hopefully capture a privileged moment that may never happen again. Uh
1: Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast originates from and connects the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Mark, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of... 9-11, 9-11, September 11th, and its anniversary is probably the wrong word. Remembrance might be a better word. Right, right. And in the September issue of the National Geographic, there is an article in there by Patricia Edmonds on echoes of loss. I read this the other day, and I was very taken by not only the words, but by the photographs that were in there. And I was very glad to contact the photographer Henry Lutweiler, and he was born in Switzerland. He's a self-taught photographer. He was rejected by one of Switzerland's best photography schools, opened his own studio, went bankrupt in a year and a half, apprenticed with a photographer in Paris named Gilles Tapie. He established himself as an editorial photographer. He moved to New York City. His portraits have graced the pages of Vogue, Vanity Fair, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, Esquire, Time. He's photographed Michelle Obama, Julia Roberts, Iggy Pop, Rihanna, to name a few. Wow. And he finds the beauty within. And Henry Lutweiler, welcome to St. Louis in Tune.
0: Hi, Arnold.
1: I really have gotten a good feel for you in our communication back and forth. I'm greatly appreciative, Henry, that you're taking time out of your schedule to talk to us because I find your photographs very moving. They resonate to me especially the ones that you see in the National Geographic article. And wanted to talk a little bit about, in in leading the interview with you, talk a little bit about your background some more. I know you can fill in some gaps and talk some stylistic things. But then I really want to talk about how you view artistic expression. And uh, we'll kind of go from there. Is that okay?
0: I'm all yours.
1: So I know your parents were both, uh, your grandfather and your father were both printers, and although photography is kind of a printing medium, but it's just a a visual printing medium. So why photography for you?
0: You know, I wanted to become an architect. Really? (laughs) I I don't say this often. I was terrible at math, and uh, somehow I jumped the boat and became very, very interested in photography. I lived and I grew up in a small village and somehow I thought photography would get me out of there, and it has. Uh, I traveled around the world. I met a lot of interesting people. I did many, many interesting assignments, uh, National Geographic being one of them, probably one of the most interesting uh, ones, I have to admit. And the rest is a lot of luck to be at the right place at the right time, and uh, so it goes.
1: So, do you remember the first photograph that you took? Was it the landscape oh, or an object or I remember, something?
0: I remember the first I was on holiday with my parents. I was probably six or seven years old. I had a small, uh, you know, a Kodak Kodak camera, and one was of a family friend running in a garden, uh, and the second one was a, a small sailboat uh, tipping over and and, and going down. I still have the pictures. They're square. They're probably you know two and a half inches by two and a half inches, and that was the beginning. Uh, it, it's interesting because at some point that I, I I became a fashion photographer. I walked away from it, and and that was really my beginning. Uh, and then I became very 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 interested in portrait uh, photography, and then I navigated away portrait beauty, still life, and the capsizing sailboat, in a way, when I look at the picture today, in a way, it's a still life. Uh, I don't consider it anything other than a still life, and I've done that all my life.
1: You do a great job of still lives. Oh, yeah. It's it's just... Uh... Well,
0: I'm, I'm reading, you know, <laughs> I've been reading the manual for 40 years, you know, there's a few <laughs> parts left, uh, so... Thank you, thank you. It's a good manual. It's called The Famous photographer School, and I'm sure you know it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah,
1: now you've had some difficult moments in your career. I mentioned when I was introducing you that you weren't allowed to be in the most famous photography school in Switzerland, and then you started a business and you went belly up.
0: Yeah, I told you I was. I wasn't very good at math, so, you know, business uh, went to the ground, into the ground. Um, But, you know, everything that happens in life uh, comes with a reason. And the reason was to probably prepare myself to very, very harsh times. I believe that every honest photographer today can admit, painfully admit, that New York is not paved in gold, nor is Paris. And uh, I'm sure you know a little bit of our editorial magazine world. It's a rough, it's a rough landscape. It's not getting easier with time. You would hope so, but it doesn't. It gets actually more complicated. And I think that with the rejection, actually not even once, twice end the bankruptcy of my you know it was a tiny tiny studio we we opened it with a with a friend colleague of mine back in the early 80s it really prepared me for what was to come and thank god for that and thank god that mom and dad said back in the day i i follow their advice just never give up and keep on going and You know, when you think you're all the way on the top, uh, which you should actually never think, well, it becomes very wobbly, and most of the time you fall back down, and you start over. And that's what it is. That's how I uh, managed to do what I did uh, in the past 40 years.
1: That's great advice. We're talking to Henry Lutweiler from Switzerland right now. And and Henry, what what has changed about photography over the 40 years, from your viewpoint?
0: It, it, It became more complicated. I hate technology. You know, I can still take my father's Rollerflex and put the film inside and look out the window and say, ah, 125.8 with, uh-huh. you know, 400 AOK film. And now I need a digital tech and an assistant hooking up all the digital equipment so I can actually photograph and I can't stand it. And when you think you know it, Software changes, camera changes, and then you need to read the manual again, and I refuse to read the manual. <laughs> so that has changed. Back in the day, you could buy a, a, a RollerFlex for $1,000. And nowadays, a digital camera, like the ones we unfortunately have to use or use, is more like $60,000. And you should not just have one. You should definitely have two. If number one. You know, doesn't work. You have to reach number two, and sometimes even number three. So I actually really don't like it. I would love to be able to go back to film, which uh, I often do for my personal projects. But photography nowadays is such a quick turnaround that while you're actually photographing, editors usually call and say, "Can you see it?" <laughs> and that's terrible. Do you so think? I think it was better back in the day.
1: Do you think it restricts you in in any way, using the modern technology for photography?
0: Yes and no. I think it doesn't restrict us because we can work faster and we can deliver faster. But I do believe, because I'm a romantic, that the romantic process uh, has vanished. It is no longer a romantic process. It's not fun to see the picture immediately on a highway screen and show it and share it with everyone. It was much better when you thought you had the photograph. It is actually in the role of film that you have in your camera. You need to process it, make contact sheets, edit the thing, make a print, then deliver it. It's much, much more romantic than just shoot, you have it. And even the language, we don't shoot, we photograph. Mm. It's not a shooting, it's a sitting. I mean, the whole vocabulary has hmm. changed. Let's say we can we can fulfil the brief of a client, and we can have a celebrity in and out in twenty minutes instead of two hours. I prefer to chit chat with Julia Roberts for two hours than twenty minutes.
2: Me too. Me too. I'm with you on that one, Henry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, and by the way, I remember distinctively and why I, I mentioned Julia Roberts, I did the billboards uh, for three days of rain when Julia came to Broadway. Aww. And I literally had 20 minutes. And it was the first day we finally mm-hmm. went from film to digital. So I, I had my digital cameras for the first time in my hands on that assignment. And literally, I was seeing myself. Mm. I mean, I was scared. You have no idea how scared I was. So you know, I hope I can photograph Julia Roberts again.
1: Well, we we hope you can
0: Julia, too, you, yeah. Julia. Are, Julia, are you listening?
2: Oh my! Yeah, go ahead, and we'll we'll come by and help you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> We'd
1: love to be my there. My phone
0: number is on my website. <laughs> hey, yeah.
1: So 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 on wow. an aside from that, is it true that Ursula Andrus fell asleep in your lap?
0: She did, <laughs> and it was very embarrassing. Wow. She did. I don't know where you where you read it and where, where you heard it. Or I don't think I may. Maybe I disclosed it to you when we chatted the first time. No,
1: I, I do my but background work.
0: <laughs> you, you did. You did well. You did well. Yeah. It's. Uh, I, I realize now it's a badly kept secret. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Don't do that. Yeah.
1: Not around Arnold anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you take the photographs, uh, I, I should say when you do shoots. Let me get my language corrected. In a regular photo shoot, how many images do you normally take?
0: It depends. Uh, So if we're talking uh, still life, only a few. If I have to photograph a perfume bottle, uh, maybe 10. If we have to do a magazine cover, uh, probably a good 100, maybe 200. But at the end, that equals to five rolls of film which is not that much. I, I learned something a long time ago, uh, probably, let me think, 1994. I was photographing Helmut Newton in Monte Carlo. And I was young. I mean, you know, Helmut Newton is a legend. I'm a young photographer. And I was photographing film. I was, I, I had my Hasselblad in my hands and we do one roll of black and white, one roll of color, and then one roll of black and white, that's 36 frames. Um, Helmut becomes kind of a little... He said, do you have it? you have it? And I said, oh, uh, Mr. Newton, would you mind please opening the camera you have around... The, uh, the camera uh, bag you have around your neck. I was trying to, you know, save some time and, and, and do maybe one or two more rows And Helmut tells me, if you don't have it within seven minutes, you never will. And walked away.
2: Ooh. Wow.
0: So That's I right. had the picture... And I do have to admit that if you don't manage to photograph someone decently within seven minutes, you never win. Ah, good point. So Helmut was
2: right.
0: Helmut was right. Nobody wants to sit in front of a camera for two hours. It doesn't exist. Not even a professional model. Hmm.
1: And they're paid to sit in front of a camera. Seven minutes. Yeah, right.
0: Seven minutes.
1: So how do you get them to get some of the images that we see? Are you talking to them while you're photographing them? Are you cracking jokes? I I know it's making people feel at ease. That's really really important, so that they feel comfortable and they can relax.
0: You know, Arnold, it, it there's no formula. Sometimes, uh, you know, God is with us and sometimes he's just not. I remember one day Philip Glass walks into the studio and and literally walks in, looks at me and says, I'm in a really bad mood. Don't ask me to smile. He sits down. I do three frames. They, They were decent. He left and that was it. Wow. Roberto Benini comes into the studio. Uh, we spend maybe two hours together. I would, I wasn't able to keep the man in front of the camera more than a second. <laughs> he was running all over the place. And then, you know, sometimes you seduce, you, sometimes you, uh, you, you, you joke, and, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, one of the less funny jokes were when I when I was photographing Karl Rove uh, for the New York Times magazine in the White House. Um, they made me wait in the library, and uh, so I looked at the books, and, you know, I found the book on uh, Iraqi antiquities, Mr. Rove finally walks in and I, I, I give him the book and says, oh, you know, while I was waiting, I found this book. Uh, you know, this is the beginning of civilization. Think twice before you bomb Iraq. And uh, Mr. Rove's answer was, be nice to me and where you live. Uh, so that's usually sets the tone. Uh, you never know. You never know where you're going to be. Iggy Pop, you know, who doesn't want to photograph Iggy, Iggy Pop? naked everybody has photographed him naked i wanted to photograph him naked but i researched there was one picture that nobody has ever taken off iggy naked was in the shower Mm. so we booked a hotel room with a beautiful shower we had three setups and i was hoping i had you know my bathing suit on under my jeans and i said well if i have to take it off i will you know to make it feel good and whatever the business, I mean, the manager comes in and says, Henry, by the way, today, no funny business. He keeps his clothes on. <gasps> so that never happened what? either. And the next day, the next day, there was, I think, a, a, a cover image of him in the New York Post where he, he left my, my photo shoot to go to an art school and got naked in front of them. Uh. And I was like, mm, I can't say the word. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Uh, so, <laughs> There's no there's you never you never know. You never know. You never know. It can go sideways, it can go exactly the way you hope. You can have everything organized and actually everything you organized was a bad idea. And somehow the subject, the model, the actor helps you to get there. The the trick and I learned this late because in the beginning I think photographers tend to be a little bit of, a little bit arrogant and the older you get the less arrogant you become. It's not about us, it's about the subject in front of the camera. And when you manage to do that, then you are in a good place to hopefully capture a privileged moment that may never happen again. But it's not a given, it doesn't always happen. And um, you know, I've, I've failed a few times. And there's no excuse, but sometimes It just happens. Um, I even did walk out uh, on two individuals in my career. And when you get the phone call from the director of photography of the New York Times magazine, uh, telling you, uh, I heard you walked out. uh, And you have to explain why. It's never a good spot. No. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it it is what it is. Right, I did get the cover though. I had the picture when I before walking out. I had the picture, ah. so I, I did get the cover. The, I didn't just walk out. Mm. And then the last, the last maybe I go too far, but the last piece of advice, which we also learn a little bit too late in life, is: be nice to the people on your way up. You might meet them on your way down. <laughs> I've heard that. That's, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good so one. So it's it's the tr- it's the truth. The little assistant that you had a little argument with. Thirty years ago, is now the editor-in-chief of XYZ magazine that mm-hmm. you would love to work for, right. and he ain't going to do it. <laughs> I
2: know. They never forget, do they, Henry? They never forget those they things. Ne-
0: somehow, you know what? Somehow they never forget. And you know what's the worst thing? (laughs) No. Nobody remembers all the good pictures. They all remember the last bad one. Right,
1: right.
2: That is so true. I know. You could do 10 good
0: things. (laughs) It's a very dangerous job. I bet. I bet.
1: Thinking back on your career and how you progressed in the 40 years that you were just been talking about, what was the tipping point when you felt you had your legs under you and the lens of your camera kind of became the paintbrush as an artist would have or your instrument as a musician would would perform?
0: It hasn't happened yet. You're going to laugh, but it hasn't happened yet. Every single time I go out of the house on an assignment, I'm questioning the instrument, the technique, the light the decisions that we did, Uh, the team around me, I I have sleepless nights, my stomach is upside down, by the way, I had a mediocre sleepless night before coming uh, live on the radio with you, because I rarely do this, English is not my mother tongue, and you know, there's always a trick question, you know, I I always enjoyed Charlie Rose, over and there was always a trick question. So please, no trick questions today.
1: <laughs> okay, no trick
2: questions, Henry. Well, wait, I have one. That, that no, Michael but, Jackson but, glove. But, but, <laughs> I saw you took a photo fo- in I your could, in your portfolio. I saw that Michael Jackson glove. Did you ever put it on? <laughs> there, there's my trick question. I,
0: I did no. I did. I did not. I did not. I'm I'm tending to be incredibly respectful when I
2: yeah. do. Oh, good.
0: You know the still lives that we're talking about. Uh, to me, they like portraits. Mm-hmm. The the owners of these objects happen not to be there. Mm. Gandhi's glasses, or Michael Jackson's gloves, right. uh, Muhammad Ali's uh, boxing gloves, mm. and the list goes on. And and including uh, including, of course, uh, the National Geographic portfolio. Oh. We wear gloves. We are very very respectful. I mean. We usually don't really joke about these things because right. it's a very small industry. If a picture comes out w- with me wearing a Michael Jackson glove, it's done. Yeah, nobody will trust me anymore. I so understand. We don't. We don't do it. Okay. I mean, I. One day, I, I mean, my assistants once in a while who are a little bit naughty. So one of them was a huge Elvis fan, and. Did borrow a little bit of the Elvis, of one of Elvis's perfumes on a glove and put it in a ziploc bag and mm. sneak it down his pants and brought it home, uh, but, but I can't, I don't do that. Mm. Right, I can't do that.
1: You've done a lot of books with those kinds of things, like Frank Sinatra's address book and the, the Neverland Lost, which were all of like Michael Neverland. Jackson's uh, items, correct?
0: Yeah. Correct. I did also book on Elvis. I have done a book uh, that took me twelve years called Document. There's a few more books in the pipeline. Thank God, always with the same uh, publisher and printer, Steidl in Germany. I feel that I'm immensely privileged to be able to uh, play with him. Uh, and you know, uh, again, I go back to what what I said in the in the beginning. It is really a lot of luck. It is really about being at the right spot at the right time and meet the right people and hopefully not to mess it up. The real artists, in my opinion, are uh, surgeons who save lives. We are just photographers. There's nothing about it, you know. Uh, We perform a service and once in a while we're lucky and once in a while we win an award, but we don't save lives.
1: Well, I can tell so that your success has not let's, gotten let's, to your head, Henry. You're very humble with that. And that's that's really satisfying and unusual to see because many times uh, people who have drawn some fame, it gets uh, to their head a little bit. And it's, it's very nice to hear those comments come from you. Henry, we're going to take a little break here. Thank you. We're going to come back. Okay. And uh, we're talking to Henry Lutweiler. He's in Switzerland. He's noted photographer. And if you don't know his works... Take a look in the September issue of the National Geographic. He's also got a show coming, Sacred Dust, which is going to be in New York City, September 10th through the 26th at the Foley Gallery. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune on the U.S. Radio Network. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're having a great conversation with Henry Lutweiler in Switzerland. Henry is a noted photographer, and oh wow, what works too! My
2: goodness. Go to his website and look at his portfolio. And, um, Henry, what what I find so fascinating is every photograph is different from the one before it. There's just the the lighting, the detail, whatever you're capturing in all of these. uh, It is very, you're an artist. I mean, there's just no question about it.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you.
1: So I, I love historical memorabilia, like autographs and documents, things like that, uh, one-of-a-kind items. And, and what is it about these cultural icons and the objects that they owned or pro- possessed that fascinate you, like Sinatra's address book or those kinds of things? What, what does it fascinate you?
0: You know, uh, Arnold, I— I always try, I should respond in a direct line to your question, but I, I, I go around it, if you don't <laughs> mind.
1: I don't mind. As,
0: as you have realized since the beginning <laughs> of our interview. Yes. The idea is that, yes, initially I'm a portrait celebrity photographer that then at some point started doing portraits and still life. When you photograph human beings, you're not always in control. You have a big team around you. And sometimes the photograph is not what it should have been. And even though everybody blames the photographer for the mishap, it's not always just his fault. When photographs still lives, objects, memorabilia, documents, historical, historically relevant uh, material, I do believe that objects talk and It's really a one-to-one conversation. When I do still life, I actually don't do still lives. I do portraits of objects. Mm. And to me, those those objects talk back to me, and I hope they emote, after they've been photographed, something to you when you look at it. So for me, a portrait in a still life is actually identical in concept, identical in process, uh, identical in care, except that when I photograph an object, I'm 100% in control. I am not 100% in control when I photograph a human being.
1: Wow. When you said that it speaks to you, I I get that. Because I can look at some art, it doesn't do anything for me. I can look at other art, and it really speaks to me. Same with music. Some music just resonates within my, my soul, and... Really moves me emotionally and and gets me going. And you mentioned at the front end of the show about the National Geographic, not the article, but the uh, items that you were taking. Assignment. Yeah, the yep. assignment. Yep. So, so, folks, he was commissioned by National Geographic for this issue in September, and he explored the uh, archives of uh, the Museum of the nine eleven Museum over seventy thousand objects, and. It's incredible. How did you pick the ones that you picked, or were they picked for you? Or did they, let me ask you, did they pick you?
0: Well, both. First and foremost, National Geographic reached out to me. It was not something that I had planned. Um, So they reached out to me. We started talking for many, many, many hours on concepts. And yes, you have to find uh, the right concept to do something meaningful. It's a tribute, you know, it's a tribute yes. to 20 years of sadness, uh, losses of families, losses of loved ones. You have to be very, very careful. At one point, you know, you go through archival photographs and you go through documents, you go through emails, and you talk to the curators, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, at some point, became very interested in the concept of recovery recovered objects. And most of the recovered objects of which we picked belong unfortunately to people who who died. I didn't want to photograph drawings, I didn't want to photograph photographs, I didn't want to photograph quilts, uh, you know, memorabilia of the families that were given back to the museum. I, I really want to photograph objects recovered. <laughs> okay. From nine eleven Throughout the years, because, uh, you know, the process of recovery took years. Uh, And only then we we, we realized, okay, we covered objects. How many out of the 70,000, maybe 3,000, 4,000, 5,000? And then we started opening boxes and then we started to edit this down. Uh, and, and my prerogative was, uh, let's try with the choice of images, we, or with the choice of objects we do, that we can actually tell a story. Uh, of course, the, 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 the journalist uh, or the writer had not seen the photographs. So I was telling myself a story. How can I convey uh, a humble, respectful portrait, through the still lives of the tragedy of 9-11. So I I haven't even counted how many photographs are in the magazine. I would guess probably a a little bit over 30. But I think I photographed over 360 images and then I had to narrow it down to 150 and then to 80 and then to 50. And then I, 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 I stopped because I couldn't. For me, the 50 last ones were all you know, they become a family of objects and you become the guardian of those objects and those stories and, mm. and it became very difficult so I let the magazine uh, and the editors then pick what they thought was relevant in the show at, uh, at, uh, at the Foley Gallery in New York let's say there's maybe 80% of the images that have been featured in National Geographic and maybe 20% of images that were left behind but that. I believe are relevant and interesting. So that's what happened and that's how it happened. I, I came up with the with the recovery concept. And the recovery concept became very difficult because what recovered is obviously human dust, mm-hmm. right, sacred right. dust, right. asbestos. So we ended up wearing, you know, not just uh, covid mask we had the respirators and we had the gloves on it it was it's it's not easy to work two weeks with the respirator you know if you're not used to it, uh, it, it it's quite difficult and um that's how that's how we did it day after day many hours no lunch never lunch no time and um And again, I'm immensely grateful that National Geographic Geographic reached out to me and that you have to, and allowing me to have a voice Mm -hmm. above and beyond the photographs in the magazine.
1: Now, you were in Manhattan on September 11th. Really? Correct?
0: I was, and I was living on Leonard Street between Broadway and Church, which is just a few blocks further up. It was obviously not a happy day.
1: So when you photograph these objects that have been recovered, what did that stir in you? Did you it, remember it things was, you tasted or smelled at the time when it, it that a, it happened?
0: Was it, 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 it was a flashback. It was a flashback, Arnold. Uh, so I refused to go back downtown and photograph. So I have not a single photograph of 9-11 Beyond the photographs I did for National Geographic, previously for Stern Magazine uh, ten years ago, I did a different story. But distinctively, we then went back on Leonard Street, and you know the the smell, the smell of death, mm. and the smell of burning buildings mm. is still in my mm. in my memory and when we opened boxes and when we opened the the plastic containers within the boxes mm. the smell came out. Oh my uh, it's still there. Wow. Twenty years later you can smell it. Oh. And again, uh, I I have the national geographic in my hands and I just wanna the photograph of the pants on the hangar with the little note that says, Pan's wound on 9-11-01 at the World Trade Center. Please do not wash. The ash is the remains of those that died. God bless them. Mm. This is it. It is sacred dust. Um, I would probably have called the the, the article, uh, I mean, the the title of the the portfolio sacred dust. Every item is covered with dust. Mm. Every single one. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a Rolodex, doesn't matter if it's a a firefighter helmet, or if it is a keyboard. Everything is covered in in dust. And and again, I don't want to go there, but we know what that dust is. So again, when you photograph 365 objects, you do it, or you try and do it, in the most respectful manner you can. You know, I mean, a photographer usually made sure that the surface is photographing on is always clean. And, you know, we wipe them, we wash them, we vacuum them. On this assignment, every speck of dust went back into the box. Mm. Again, we paid incredible attention and we tried to be as respectful as possible. We are touching human remains. You can, you know, it, it needs to be said.
1: Right. How long did that take you to do that shoot?
0: Uh, More or less two weeks. Uh, We did it in two different locations, upstate New York and uh, in New Jersey. Hmm. So approximately two weeks, I would say weeks of preparation of research, and then weeks of editing and uh, conversations, and then minor supervision, uh, I mean, National Geographic was very gra- grateful, uh, uh, and very kind. They allowed me to see the layout in progress. I gave a few comments. Uh, even when it came down to, please do not re- crop the images, and it, it was an incredible uh, uh, assignment. It was incredible to work with a fabulous team. Mm. I had an incredible editor. Um, the director of photography sent me an email in the beginning with uh, Whitney Johnson that I will never forget. Um, I, you know, stop me if I talk too much and if time is running out. No, you're fine. You know, I never dreamt, I, I always hoped, but I never dreamt to have a 22 page portfolio and in certain foreign issues, uh, the French issue also a cover. You know, I think there's probably around 30 international editions around the world. And so the covers are always a little bit different or, you know, it's not always exactly what the American edition is, but it's, it's a privilege and a dream to have this happen. I mean, I'm, I'm a baby photographer within the National Geographic world, but it is definitely something that um, I never expected. I didn't even really know how to get around and say, Hey, why don't you assign me a 22-page portfolio and a cover? It, it just happened. I got an email uh, from Todd James uh, one morning uh, while I was in Switzerland, and he asked me, would you be interested in doing this for us, and will you be in New York? And my response with him said was, yes. And, and that was it. You know, I mean, it, it, These are those magic, magic assignments um, that probably you never forget.
2: Henry, did you have a hand in uh, picking the items that you took yes. photos of in the I, National I, Geographic?
0: I I picked the items. Okay. I picked the items with David Bernhauser, who, who uh, worked with me closely for the entire project. Uh, he was, I mean, everybody, I mean, everybody was gracious enough to allow me to make the choice of what I wanted to photograph. It was really about, we want Henry's picks and Henry's vision on this story. Mm-hmm. And that's also a very rare occurrence. I mean, most of the time people tell us what they want. Right. Uh, in this instance, they let me do, uh, right. which again, I'm immensely grateful for.
1: That speaks to that you're a titan in humility. Right. Because yeah. they know your work mm-hmm. and they know that you do your homework. And I, w- I was very curious. You know, you, you did a lot of front end work before you even looked at anything. Right. And Correct. My, my question is, and this kind of relates to your books on ballet and your fascination with ballet. I saw a photograph of you and read an article where you spent a month a month and a half just observing the New York ballet before you even shot anything Mm -hmm. and that's an important aspect I think that gets maybe left out of photography where people just put the camera up and take a shot
0: You know Arnold I I believe if you want to have a hope if you want to have hope to progress in your profession you need to know what has been done before and i remember i I have read a lot of books i've seen a lot of pictures i visited a lot of museums and not just photography but and i remember distinctively robert kappa uh, one of the founders of magnum uh, robert kappa said if the picture is not good you're probably not close enough But he didn't mean close within distance. He meant your heart and your mind and your spirit and your knowledge is not deep enough to make this picture come alive. Mm. And that's the trick. You cannot snap away. In the case of uh, the National Geographic assignment, you have to try and understand what you're looking at. 70,000 objects, and then maybe, I don't know, 50,000 boxes. There's sometimes more than one object in a box. You can't just open the first 20 and, 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 and go for it. And the same thing for the New York City Ballet. Actually, I did six years of campaigns, twice a year, uh, probably 10 days a year, uh, six times. 60, 60 days, many, many shows, became friends, and one day asked if, if I could do a book. And by then, six years later, you know the ballet you know the music, you know the dancers, you you know when to photograph, you become invisible, you're dressed in black and nobody cares about who you are and what you do. And that's the trick. If you go in and you snap something, I mean, how? I mean, I I don't believe... I mean, yes, luck, maybe. Yes, yes, luck. But knowledge is more important than luck. And again, Remembering what uh, you know, I was saying Charlie Rose, the trick question, and, and Richard Avedon. I, I, I remember uh, frantically scrambling to get those tapes back in the day—VHS tapes of the interviews—and on one of them, Charlie Rose asks uh, Richard Avedon, Dick uh, was his nickname, what makes you such a genius? which is the trick question, and and Avdon uh, didn't respond and said, well, I can't answer that question, but if you photograph every day and you do every day one picture, after 40, 50 years, you might get better at it, and that's the trick. Hmm. It's knowledge, it's research, it's patience. I do believe that the subject is more important than the photographer. You have to become humble. And um, it's a trick that works. If you go in with an arrogant attitude uh, in front of XYZ, Y, E, you're done. Hmm. You're done. I mean, I, Toni Morrison walked into my studio. Salman Rushdie walked into my studio. These these are people I always looked up to. You you have to you have to bow. And actually, the beauty of the rollerflex and the beauty of the concept in the olden days of the sitting, when you think about the sitter sits lower than the photographer, the photographer stands, but we bow. When you hold the rollerflex, you look down and you bow in front of the subject. That's how it's done. Mm. You don't shoot. You don't have a 35mm cannon and you aim it like a gun. Or a, it, it, it's not, it, this is romance. You know, to to me, the the process of photography is a romantic process. Mm -hmm. It's not a vulgar one. It's not an immediate one. Uh, But again, if I would have known this when I was 20, I would have probably, you know, (laughs) done things differently. It It took me 40 years to be able to even express what I just shared with you, because every day we learn. Every day we learn, every day, every mistake we make makes us grow and learn, which is what Richard Abram said. If you take a picture every day for 40, 50 years, at the end, you might get better at it. That doesn't mean you're going to be good. You're going to be better.
1: <laughs> wow, what advice. <laughs> you know, and I was going to ask you, what suggestion do you have for budding photographers, but I'm going to let it stay there. That's pretty good. <laughs> and you wouldn't be where you were today unless you had been listening to that inner voice or listening to those mistakes that you made and correcting. And what's unfortunate is this: some of the, not some of the things, all of the things that you just said, some people never get to the point where they realize that and wonder why they are not doing better.
0: Do your homework. Read a lot of books. Go to see a lot of movies. Go to the museum. Look at the painters and look at the the master photographers, and put it in a cocktail and shake it and put a little bit of who you are in it, and it it might work. It may not. The advice I have for young photographers, I don't think I have any. Just be stubborn. Mm -hmm. Don't give up, and don't believe what happened in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Only a handful of us uh, at some point managed to earn a decent living. Uh, Many others will not. Uh, And then one day you're obsolete. Uh, And and we are not the ones deciding that we're obsolete. The industry thinks we're obsolete. And then, you know, you become a fisherman. You know, I don't know. It's tough out there. It's really, really tough out there. And I'm grateful that the phone still rings and the good assignments still come. Mm -hmm. But I'm ready to close the door if that's what needs to be done one of these days oh. and walk away from it.
2: Well, you're quite a student of photography. I mean, it sounds like you've always been a student. Always absorbing. I,
0: I will die a, I will die a student. It's so much more fun.
1: Yes. Yes. But well, you love what you do. It's not a job.
0: <laughs> I, I've never worked a day in my life.
1: That's right. That's right. <laughs> Good. Love that. I can identify with that. I've never
0: worked a day in my life. I mean, washing dishes for me is work, but photograph photograph is not work.
1: We've been talking to Henry Lutweiler, uh, international photographer, who has some wonderful work, folks, that you need to take a look at. Many, many books out. He's going to be featured at the Foley Gallery in New York City, September 10th through September 26th, for the works Sacred Dust And also you need to get a copy of the September issue of the National Geographic where he has a memorials in there. It's it's, uh, with Patricia Edmonds, Echoes of Loss. It's on page 124 that starts. You need to get that and check that out. Henry, I, I really have looked forward to this all week and really feel a kinship with you even though I've not met you.
0: Thank you so much. Come to New York on September 10th.
1: I think and, that's and a-
0: let's and let's and let's have a drink.
1: <laughs> I, I will. I need to tell my no. wife that I would love to do that, and I'll be in touch with you. I, I greatly appreciate you coming on, sir. You did a great job. You you shouldn't have. You should have slept like a baby last night.
0: <laughs> yeah, I woke up at three a.m. <laughs> oh. I woke up at three a.m. But uh, again, I would like to thank you both, and you know, the last the last for so today. I have been a magazine photographer all my life. Please buy magazines. It is so much better than you look at stuff on an iPad.
2: I'm so glad you buy said that. I agree so much. It's a whole different experience to hold it in your hand. And it, look. Is. it is.
0: And then you can cut them out and then you can pin them on the wall mm-hmm. and then you can go back to them and then you can share them mm-hmm. and you can do collages with them and please buy magazines. By buying magazines you're gonna keep people like me and all my friends in business.
2: That's great. That's great. I frame some of them too. I frame some of the good pictures once in a while. But known to do that. Maybe I'll be framing Henry's. I right. get okay. Henry to sign a few of them. There you go. <laughs> Henry, thanks for coming on Saint Louis in Tune. Yeah,
0: Henry, thank you very, very much. Uh, I'm immensely grateful to you both.
2: I am grateful to you, sir. Th- thank you very much. Thank you for your contributions. Yes. honestly, they're they're wonderful. Yes. Our society, our thank world so needs them. Thank you, Henry. Bless you. Have a great but evening, I sir.
0: Talk to you soon, and, and I hope we meet.
2: I do too. I, I'm going to talk to my wife about September 10th, Henry. I'm going along. I'll be in his. I'll be in a suitcase.
0: <laughs> <laughs> bring, bring her with you. It might be easier to oh, convince. That,
1: her. You're exactly right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Bye bye. Godspeed. Bye bye. Mark, I've been emailing him back and forth for five days, mm-hmm. and in our correspondence, it's just been getting to know him and how he answers I hadn't talked to him you know never met the man right. and just the uh, the ability to um, look at his pictures and then listen to what he said and then read what he's been writing to me in the emails that's why I said he was a titan of humility right and, and the the things that he said about it's a romantic process yeah. you can't have a romantic process unless you're a romantic yeah and you understand that the pictures speak to him, or the items speak to him, right. the objects speak to him. I get that. Right. I understand what he's saying there. And still life is not a still life. It's a portrait of an object. Right. And these objects in in the National Geographic, the 9-11, and I'm going to call it tribute, Yeah. Uh, that's also going to be a Foley Gallery, the sacred dust, it was someone's life. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't an object because right. the dust was life. We're doing this, folks, because in two weeks— we will be at that point yeah. where it's 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do a show that was going back and hitting all the news reels and all the news mm-hmm. programs and go through all the details. This is what's left. Right. And this is what we remember. And I, I hope to have another show in two weeks with someone else in a similar vein mm-hmm. to get us to think about what art can do, what right. The visual arts and what even written arts can do for us to evoke emotion. So hope you enjoyed that. It's, I did,
2: and the fact that he picked the photographs of the objects that he was taking it even goes
1: a little deeper for me. Yes, yeah, from yes. what he did. All so right. get that issue of National Geographic, please do that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all for this hour. And wow, I'm totally was, exhausted. <laughs> I'm going to go that? home and take a nap. <laughs> that was tough. I, it was. It was
2: great. But it, it was, was. It was,
1: was. A hundred yard dash. It was. <laughs> <laughs> it was the marathon in 100 meters. Yep. So don't forget, when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. Yes, we are. For St. Louis In Tune, studio manager Derek Abbott, co-host Mark Langston, and I'm Arnold Stricker. Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine. You're listening to the U.S. Radio Network. We're glad you listened to this episode of St. Louis In Tune. Please share this podcast or tell a friend. St. Louis In Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis In Tune, I'm Arnold Strickland.